So as you look at uh, the text this morning, you see that on this day, a scribe, you see that in uh, verse 19, a scribe came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, do not miss this. It's important. Who is it that came up to Jesus? It was a scribe. You know how the scribes respond to Jesus throughout the Gospels, right? They're generally hostile to Jesus and his teaching. But here we got a scribe coming up to Jesus, a scribe, an expert in the religious law, a scribe, one of the religious elites in Israel, a scribe who might perhaps even be a minor celebrity among the people. And this scribe caught up in the moment, looking out and seeing all of the crowds, witnessing the miracles, getting swept up in the enthusiasm comes to Jesus and professes his devotion to Jesus. But how serious was this profession? Would this profession last beyond these emotionally stirring moments and emotionally stirring days? Would this profession of faith persevere when the crowds dissipated and all of the enthusiasm died down? Would this scribe When the truth of following Christ is revealed, that it is a narrow, difficult road consisting of sacrifice, self-denial, obedience, and even suffering, would this scribe continue on? Or would the scribe be revealed a false convert, a fair-weather disciple, one who, when the real cost of following Jesus conflicts with his life, with his pursuits, with his wants, with his desires, with his passions, would he simply walk away? You see, most, if not all of us, know and care for someone like this scribe, right? Who, much like this momentarily eager scribe, professed at some point in their life, I'll follow Jesus. And at one point, they even exhibited all the characteristics of somebody who is, as we like to term it, on fire for the Lord. But now, their profession is either teetering on the precipice of apostasy, or they still pay lip service to Jesus, but their life reveals that they don't truly serve him. And saying things like, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. He understands me. Or... They've simply walked away outright. In other words, most of us, I would assume, know somebody who once claimed to be a Christian, but no longer claims to be a Christian. What are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to respond to those people? It's heartbreaking. It's confusing. It leaves us feeling helpless when all we can do is watch our friends and our family members reject Jesus Christ, renounce Jesus Christ, walk away from their profession in Jesus Christ. And this distressing scenario isn't just limited to the people in our own lives. It's not just limited to the people we walk with and we talk with and we work with. Thanks to social media... The stories of people rejecting their profession of faith and then walking away from the Lord that they once professed to love, these stories have now, that which are now called stories of deconversion are plastered everywhere. 
It wasn't hard to find a number of them as I looked up uh, the stories for this message. This last week, I read a number of these stories in preparation for our time together this morning, and I couldn't help but feel the anguish and the sorrow for both the apostate who renounces their profession and for the people who are affected by their apostasy, by their renunciation of their profession. What are we supposed to think when we read of a famous celebrity pastor, a man who labored to accurately preach and teach the Word of God in in the pulpit for decades, a man who wrote best-selling books that helped and impacted millions of Christians, who seemingly out of nowhere publicly announced his abandonment of the faith he once professed, of the faith he once proclaimed from the pulpit, and then immediately proceeded to file for divorce from his wife. Think about the ripples that that causes. Think about everybody who is impacted and affected by such an event. How are we supposed to respond to the musicians and the front men of Christian bands who shaped and influenced my generation of young Christians? And even now, today, some of the more well-known and popular of the, the today's Christian bands and worship groups even, when members in the bands publicly declare that they have lost their faith and they no longer believe in God. What do we do with that? How are we supposed to respond to the endless parade of Hollywood stars and cultural elites who grow up in Christian homes, some of them having pastors as fathers, committed believers as parents, stars who themselves claimed to to follow Jesus, and then they hit it big in Hollywood... And now, being rich and famous and influential in the world, they abandon the faith they once professed in favor of rank and debauched worldliness. How are we to respond to this rather startling study I read this week about the number of pastors and preachers of both small and large churches across North America who continue preaching and continue teaching but have secretly confessed to having abandoned their faith a long time ago. But they remain in their pulpits for a number of reasons. Some said, they don't have any other skills. What else could I do? Some said, they like the money because some of the big-time churches pay their pastors big-time money. Others said, they enjoy the job. It's like play-acting, one person said. Others suddenly begin moving their churches in a more secular, culturally acceptable direction. And some of them are now at the place where they host drag queen festivals and they shout from the rooftops that God is a woman, while others think it prudent and fun to offer congregants tattoos during the sermon. What do we do with these things? In reading a number of these leaving the faith stories, a few common themes stuck out over and over and over again. They said things like, no one in the church wanted to talk about real issues. Or, I had so many questions, and I'd go and I'd ask people, but they would always give me pat answers or tell me things like, tut, 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 we don't ask questions like that in a church. But none of the articles ever actually delved into the effort of the person to find the answers that they were looking for. And that was telling. You see, the church has been 
talking about and grappling with and seeking to answer and writing books and articles and periodicals and preaching sermons and leading Bible studies on nearly every conceivable biblical subject for the last 2,000 years. And as I looked at a number of these celebrity deconversions, the laziness of the objections and the lack of any real effort and hunger to address them was a constant. And so I kept asking myself, well, where did you look for answers to those questions? What did you consult to find answers to those questions? How desperately were you looking for those answers? Do you even really want answers? Now, I will be fair because some did, in fact, strive for answers. Usually they wanted to know about things like hell and suffering and wrath and justice and issues of holiness and obedience to the Lord's revealed will. And there were a number of times when I, got a, when I read the did God really say moments. Now, did God really say that doing X, X, this X and Y is really sinful? Did God really say that? And then they just change their mind or they walk away. When it all came down to it, the common underlying reason for these walkaways was simply this. I want my sin more than I want Christ. The cost of following Jesus is simply too high. And many of them related the point in their lives when they, like the scribe, approached Jesus on this day, caught up with the enthusiasm. Maybe they were at an event or a retreat and there was a whole lot of emotionalism going on, but they were caught up in some enthusiasm and in some excitement and they said, I will follow Jesus wherever he goes. But the problem is that nobody told them to count the cost. Nobody told them what a life of following Jesus entails. They did not know where Jesus would lead them. They hadn't been taught to think through what devotion to Christ will actually mean for their lives. And those who abandon their professions tend to do so as the cost of following Jesus Christ, a cost that was not told to them when they said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, becomes increasingly clear. And they're faced with a stark truth. I didn't know this at the beginning, and I simply don't want to pay this cost. Which reveals that they never really wanted to, and so they walk away. And Christ, knowing the human penchant for diving before looking, for jumping into a decision because we get caught up in the moment, you know it, right? You've been, all of us have been huckstered in by a good salesman at some point, right? They get you emotionally whipped up, you buy something, then you have some buyer's remorse later. This is a human tendency. Jesus did something surprising in our text. As these two would-be disciples approach Jesus to offer their profession of faith or to offer their following him to him, he stops them in their tracks and said, in essence, count the cost. So while the text might not address what we do on the back end when somebody actually does renounce their profession, it does speak to our witness and our evangelism on the front end. And it would seem that not being challenged early and often 
to consider the narrowness of the road that leads to eternal life, not being challenged early and often to reflect on the genuineness of one's own profession, not being challenged early and often to know what you signed up for if you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, is in many cases the first step to these future apostasies. But in order to get a better understanding of the scribe and the disciple that comes up after the scribe, let's take a look at all that led to the interaction between Jesus and the scribe on this day. See, Jesus had been healing. He'd been on a a ministry of healing. He'd recently healed the leper with a touch and an I will. And then he healed the centurion's servant by a word alone. And now he heads to the disciple, disciple Peter's home, as we read in verse 14. Look at verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his, that's Peter's, mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. There's a couple of things to note here, just as asides. Peter was married. This was his mother-in-law laid up with a fever. And whereas the leper and the centurion might fade into obscurity because we don't know their names... People knew exactly who Peter's mother-in-law was. So had they wanted to, had they had questions about this event, they could have consulted her about what Jesus had done for her. And what did Jesus do for her? What did Jesus do for this woman thrown down by a terrible fever? Verse 15 tells us, He touched her hand and the fever left her. So this is another example of Jesus' compassion and his disregard for social conventions of the day. In this day, it was rare for a Jewish holy man to touch a woman, because who knows? Perhaps it was her time. And to touch a woman during this day, while on her time, meant, according to Leviticus 15.19, that he would contract uncleanness. But we know, based on the narrative of Jesus touching the leper, that Jesus does not contract uncleanness. Instead, he spreads cleanness. And so he touches her. And at his touch, healing and cleanness are dispensed to this woman. And this time, notice it, no words were spoken. It was at his touch alone that the fever left her. So with the leper, you've got Jesus speaking and touching. With the centurion, you've got Jesus simply speaking with the Peter's mother, he simply touches without any word. Jesus truly can do it all. And how do we know she was healed? Verse 15, she rose and began to serve him. Now, I don't know about you, but fevers knock me out. Could just be because I'm a man, right? I'm constantly hearing that man colds are a thing and we're not as able to, to deal with fevers and colds and things like that. But, I mean, fever. I've seen fevers knock... Other people out too. Fevers are, they can be, uh, they make me tired, they make me weak, they confine me to my bed or my couch. Maybe it's been the same for you. But as Peter's mother-in-law here, after Jesus heals her, the text says she immediately got up and began waiting on Jesus. And as you can imagine, as the news got out about where Jesus was, they verse uh, 16, that's the crowds, brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word. See, at this point in the ministry of Jesus, his fame had spread far and wide, and large crowds were following him wherever he went. 
The enthusiasm, the excitement, the, the heat of following Jesus at this moment was running really, really high. And Matthew here speaks about Christ's power over the, the, the demonic realm in that Jesus cast out spirits from a number of people by his word alone. Do you see that? By his word alone. Jesus' very word, by his very word, the power of Satan, the power of demonic oppression is curtailed. It is broken. It is cast out. And along with casting out demonic spirits, Jesus also healed all who were sick, according to verse 16, meaning those who suffered from every class of disease. Now, if you are following Jesus around and you are seeing people being healed and demon, demonically oppressed people being set free from all of that and the crowds keep getting bigger and the, the conversations in the crowds keep getting more excited, what do you think is going to happen to you? Imagine the excitement. Imagine the enthusiasm. Imagine the thrill and the fervor that is rising in the crowds as they witness firsthand the power of Jesus at work. It's easy to see why people would run up to him, caught up in the heat of the moment, and say, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, let's just take a detour here. Because look at who Jesus heals. Many who were oppressed by demons. You see that? Many who were oppressed by demons. Don't just cast over that. We don't know how these people came to be oppressed by demons, meaning under the power of the influence of or under the control of hostile spirits, hostile demonic spirits. We can't say for sure. Scripture tells us that heathen worship or the adherence to any other practice of worship to any other idol or anything other than the Lord God, Yahweh himself, brings the worshiper into connection with the demonic realm. And that's something we must all be extremely careful about. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, about this very thing, saying, to, particip- to those who want- wanted to participate in feasts at idols' temples, he said in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And Moses, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, made it clear that they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, when the people committed idolatry. And the psalmist, speaking about Israel's past history with idolatry, wrote this in Psalm 106. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, to the idols of Canaan. So it could be that these demon-oppressed people brought to Jesus had at some point opened themselves up to oppression by some association with idolatry. But regardless of how it came to be, here they were. Now at times, right, we can look back on these stories of demonic oppression and we can kind of push them to the side and relegate them to those were the issues of that day. That type of stuff doesn't really happen today, does it? We can dismiss them and kind of move past them, not thinking that this is something we are in danger of at this day. However, however, the scriptures are clear, aren't they? We must be on guard. We must be vigilant. We must be discerning because the demonic realm is just as active today as it's always been. 
The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, warned him that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, revealed the true location of our battle against evil. You remember where it is. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The demonic realm actively and fiercely fights against you who love Christ laboring to promote bitterness, to promote anger, division, sinfulness in general. As James wrote, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And so for all these reasons, we are commanded to be aware to be on guard, to be dressed in our spiritual armor against the demonic. We are commanded to be discerning about our inputs. As John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And we see in Scripture that these demonic spirits can even for a time cause physical ailments. A couple of examples... In Luke 13, we read of a woman who spent 18 years bent over and could not straighten herself up. And the reason? Luke 13.10, she had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And the Apostle Paul himself wrote of a physical ailment that he endured. He called it a thorn given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him, according to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And so we fight, we remain diligent, and we operate under the good news that Scripture reveals the ultimate final location for all of these demonic spirits. All of them will be thrown into the eternal fire, prepared for them, as Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty-one. <clears throat> now, I just want you to know that <clears throat> all of this is, that I've just said is not any sort of exhaustive explanation of the demonic realm. We will learn more as we are introduced to a number of demon-oppressed people throughout Matthew's Gospel. The point of this aside is simply to urge and to exhort each and every one of us to remain vigilant, to remain firm, and to battle against and be discerning as we seek to love, serve, and obey and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. We're back to Matthew here. Matthew connects this healing ministry of Jesus, his healing of demon-oppressed people and his healing of the sick, to the great Old Testament pointer to Christ, Isaiah 53. You see, he wrote, Matthew, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, the context of Isaiah is that of Christ's substitutionary atonement that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
The portion of Isaiah that is cited here by Matthew refers to the Messiah's bearing of our sin, his carrying of our sin, his dealing with it in our place on our behalf. But Matthew here connects it to the healing ministry, the physical healing ministry of Christ. Now, why would Matthew do that? It's because Jesus Christ ultimately saves us, saves all of us who believe from every one of sin's consequences. And the healing ministry of Jesus is a pointer to this final reality. Because the life that we live now, in this life, we will suffer. And all suffering is either directly or indirectly related to sin and the presence of sin in creation. If there were no sin, there would be no suffering. When there is no sin any longer, in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be no suffering. And in the healing ministry of Christ, we are shown a picture of what life in this renewed world, the world that's shown to us in Revelation 21, 1 to 4, the place where God himself will be with us as our God, where he wipes away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things have passed away. There is coming a day when death and disease will be permanently removed, when, and that day coincides with the day when sin is permanently removed. And so at the cross, Jesus conquered sin, and all who believe now live in hope and await that future day when even the hint of sin is completely gone, along with all of its consequences, sickness, suffering, and death. And so we live in eager expectation of this day, because Jesus took our illnesses and bore our diseases. But now back to the crowds. Again, imagine the excitement. Imagine the heart-pounding emotions that are flowing through the people as they get caught up in everything that is happening. And as Jesus saw the crowds... Verse 23, or verse 22 tells us that he gave orders to his, the four disciples he had called up to this point to go over to the other side. But before they could hop on the boat, verse 23, we read that a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This scribe wants to join the inner circle. The miracles of Jesus, the enthusiasm of the moment have sold this man on following Christ. And then I have no doubt that in that moment, the scribe did think to himself, I want to follow Jesus. And one would think, right? One would think that a scribe coming to Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus, and follow here means to accompany and obey, to actually be a disciple. One would think that Jesus would jump at that offer, right? A scribe is here. He wants to follow me. Yes, yes, come on in. This is one of the cultural elites, one of the respected figures in Jewish society. He has made it clear that he would like to follow Jesus. And again, put yourself in the scribe's place. He has most likely witnessed everything Jesus had done, and he thought to himself, this is great. What great benefits must come with being a disciple of Jesus? If I get sick, healed. My family members get sick, healed. Large crowds following us around, seeking our attention. Awesome. What a life this will be. And we can kind of understand what is happening here, right? I mean, how many of us, when we hear of a 
a cultural, culturally elite person making a profession of faith in Christ. We're like, look, 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 isn't this exciting? Look, look, isn't it exciting? This would be the same as what, they're, what this, this scribe coming to Jesus. But on this day, Jesus, hearing the offer of the scribe, gives a surprising response to his offer. Instead of saying, yes, great stuff, and pumping his fists, he pumps the brakes. And in effect, tells this scribe, listen, look before you leap. Think before you decide. Sit down and count the cost first. And he did so by saying to the scribe, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So scribes, those Old Testament scholars, were afforded a high degree of respect by the peoples. And they were accustomed to a certain level of comfort and influence in Jewish culture. And while he might not yet grasp this, following Jesus means an entirely new way of life with a whole new position and status in society. To follow Jesus means gone are the days of respect and influence and admiration and the admiration of the culture, Mr. Scribe. The scribe would now be following a man who himself has nowhere to lay his head. So the question is, will this scribe really follow Jesus? What about when the going gets tough? What about when the respect you receive from the peoples now dries up and dwindles and all you have is me? Will you then desert me? Count the cost. Is this scribe prepared for the earthly cost of discipleship? You see, these crowds were following Jesus because he did stuff for them. Because he healed them. They followed Jesus because he provided some earthly benefit to them. And even today, so many ministries, so many of these televangelist types promote this way of thinking. Follow Jesus and let the earthly blessings pour in. And so we get people who sign up for the earthly blessings plan, but not the real discipleship plan. They aren't actually disciples of Jesus. They want the earthly benefits that were promised to them, but not Jesus himself. This is mercenary faith. It's, what do I get, and how little do I have to give up to get it? And Jesus here offers no hope to such types. And in essence said, if you are not prepared to take up your cross, if you are not prepared to count the cost you are not prepared to begin the walk. Jesus guaranteed this scribe no earthly success, no healing, no money, nor anything else. He said, you follow me, you get me. Is that enough for you? Is me with you when the going gets tough enough? Is me with you when your family members pass on or when you get sick or when the money doesn't come in? Enough. Am I enough when you're slandered and insulted and persecuted? See, the scribe offered to follow Jesus, but 
he didn't know what he was truly signing up for. And so Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, meaning, Mr. Scribe, even the animals in the world have dwellings. Even the animals in this world have quarters, lodgings, places in this world. Because this world is their home. But I cannot, nor can anyone who comes after me, because as this world does not receive me, neither will it receive you. This is what it means if the, if the rabbi, if the Messiah, if Jesus has no place to put his head, do you think it'll be better for those who choose to follow him? And as Jesus would tell his own disciples in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this fact that Jesus, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head is revealed explicitly over and over and over again in the Gospels. A few examples. When Jesus healed the invalid in John chapter 5. A stunning miracle. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, instead of believing, John 5.8 says, they rejected him and were seeking all the more to kill him. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus spoke to the people and exhorted them to move from beyond the mere follow Jesus for what I can get mentality to move on from, well, as long as he's going to heal my family and provide bread for my stomach, I will follow him. And he urged the people to take the next step, to eat of the spiritual bread, to truly devote themselves to Jesus Christ and by so doing live forever. However, the text tells us the peoples began grumbling about these hard sayings. And in John 6, 66, they rejected him. And it says, after this, many of, his, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And in Matthew chapter 8, as we'll, we will look at in a few weeks, Jesus healed a demon-possessed man in Gadara. And what was their response? Matthew eight thirty five. they begged him to leave their region. And when Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem to walk the road of the cross, he sent messengers ahead of him to a Samaritan village, asking to make preparation for him to lodge there. And Luke 9.53 tells us, but the people did not receive him. They refused to host him. And that led James and John to ask Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to consume that city. And ultimately... The people called on Pontius Pilate to release the criminal, Barabbas, an actual lawbreaker, a murderer, one who actually deserved the penalties set against him, rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, the truly innocent, only righteous sufferer. The crowds chanted on that day, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't even want this man breathing the air of the earth. Truly the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. And had the scribe on this day thought through the levels of antagonism and rejection he might endure if he took up the mantle of disciple? I think not. Foxes and birds make and find homes in this world, but the Son of Man and by extension his disciples find no quarter, find no true home in this world. 
if God himself comes into the, in the flesh to the world that he created, if the Lord, the true light, the one who gives light to everyone, comes to the world and the world does not know him, if Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, what do you think the life of a true follower of Jesus will look like? For a true follower, a true disciple of Christ, no earthly location provides us with a true home. Philippians 3.20 tells us our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, writing his first letter, addresses it to the elect exiles of the dispersion, meaning Christians who live on earth. In his response to the scribe, Jesus neither accepts the offer nor rejects it. But he simply makes the truth known about what it actually means to follow him. The scribe must be told. There may be times, Mr. Scribe, when you are literally called to give up literally everything for the sake of following Christ. You must know, Mr. Scribe, that following Jesus means a life of obedience to him. It means more than some momentary, emotionally inflamed decision. It means handing your entire life over to him. And in some cases, it might even mean losing your actual life. Are you prepared for such a possibility? It is a great travesty for the church to celebrate and affirm those who profess faith in Christ but who have not counted the cost of discipleship. It is a foolish practice to withhold from would-be disciples the truth about what it means to follow Christ. And so many turn to Jesus in a similar manner to this scribe. And they aren't confronted with the same exhortation to count the cost. And sadly, we have churches filled with people clinging to false hope. We have churches filled with people on the verge of walking away from the faith they once pronounced because they realize that they hadn't counted the cost. So the question is to you, are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you considered the truth that obedience to Christ is part and parcel of discipleship, that identification with him means that this world is not your home, that you and I are called to a life on the narrow road, a life of self-denial, a life of cross-bearing. The great joy of following Jesus isn't that we get earthly benefits from him. The great joy of following Jesus is that we get Jesus. The great promise and hope that sustains us in, on that difficult road that we walk is that it leads to eternal life with Him. Is that enough for you? Jesus gave all the information up front, information that could possibly have dissuaded this scribe from following Him. How often do we see that technique used today? Now, after this scribe, another person came to Jesus. Verse 1821, or 821. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This would-be disciple has some earthly responsibilities that he wants to take care of before he puts his hand to the plow of serving Jesus. He has some affairs that he wants to get in order. 
And when he said, let me bury my father, this could mean that his father had already died and he had to go and make sure that the funeral or burial arrangements for his recently deceased father had been taken care of. Or, uh, as most commentators believe, it can mean that his father is still alive and this dutiful son must care for his father until he dies. This is the majority understanding of this text. In essence, this son was postponing his fully committing to Jesus until his father died. He was postponing his full commitment to Jesus so that he could take care of some earthly duties that he felt needed to be done. However, Jesus looked at this would-be disciple and said this in 8.22, again, rather startlingly, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The idea being your focus as a disciple, your attention as a disciple must be fully and completely set upon Jesus Christ. The cares of this world take a back seat. Your devotions cannot be split between or divided between the things of the world and Jesus. So Jesus said to this man, follow me, follow in obedient discipleship. This call that Jesus is making here is to absolute, immediate, and undivided discipleship to Christ. This call of Christ here is urgent, and it demands an immediate response. And anything, anything, even something as seemingly legitimate as let me go and bury my father first, is a no to his call. And In popular, best-selling type Christian literature, we often read, right, about this picture of a Jesus who pleads with, who does all that he can to woo people to trusting him. But is that the picture we see here? Jesus begs no one. He does urgently exhort. He does command that people respond to his call to repent and believe the gospel. And when people do... When would-be disciples do respond, he sets out the terms right from the start as an encouragement for them to make sure that this commitment they're making is a genuine one. And this was made clear to this disciple who asked Jesus to go bury his father. Now, we aren't told what this man chose to do, but we do know that Jesus made the decision quite difficult for him because in this day, to choose to follow Jesus rather than bury one's father, would have represented a grave dishonor to the family. Now, Jesus is not commanding all of us to forego caring for our parents. It's not what's being said here. He spoke specifically to this man. This man who talked about being a disciple, but yet maintained other priorities, earthly priorities that kept him from fully devoting himself to Jesus. So I don't know what the devotions are that split your attention between the world and Jesus, but whatever it is, if this was you in this narrative, Jesus would have specifically called those things out. So you have to think through in your own life, what is my, what, where am I divided? What are those areas in my life where I'm focusing on earthly things that keep me from being a fully devoted follower of Christ? What are those earthly priorities that keep me from full devotion to the Lord? 
Jesus said to this man, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Meaning, let those who are spiritually dead, let the worldly-minded take care of worldly affairs. You, if you want to be my disciple, leave the things of the earth behind and set your heart on the single most important priority there is, following Jesus. Nothing else comes even remotely close. So for you listening this morning, your highest priority is not, are not, the worldly issues that demand and require your attention. Your highest and most important priority, in fact, your only priority is devotion to Christ, wholehearted devotion to Christ. His commands supersede every earthly consideration. And his disciples strive to follow him without reservation, without qualification, and without hesitation. So where is your focus? Are you like this disciple waiting to get your earthly things in order before you turn to Jesus? Are you like the scribe wanting the benefits of Christ without having to give all that much in return? Or are you like the scribe in that you get caught up in the moment and you didn't count the cost and now you're in this place where you don't know if you want to follow Jesus anymore because the cost is proving to be too high? Where are you? Turning to Jesus Christ in faith and committing oneself to discipleship is no half-hearted pledge. It is the offering up of your very life as a living sacrifice to Christ. And there is great earthly cost associated with it. And I think we would do well to begin adopting Christ's model for witness. And instead of leaving false, half-hearted professors of faith, we should speak the truth about what it means to live for Christ, to follow Christ. Don't shy away from revealing the facts. It means hardship in the world. It means the hatred of the world. It means no real place in this world. And on top of that, it means self-denial. It means taking up your cross to follow Jesus. It means laboring to obey his word and his will. And none of these are easy. So Jesus sought to ensure that this scribe and this disciple thought through their offer to follow him. That they thought through or thought about whether their response to Christ was born out of enthusiasm in the moment, superficial, temporary, the result of all they had witnessed, powerful healing miracles. Jesus wanted them to think through these things because he understood, as we should, that the consequences of fanning and flattering thoughtless, unconsidered professions of faith can be devastating to those who must watch those professors renounce that profession when the cost gets too high. I can almost hear the sadness in the Apostle Paul's voice when he wrote to Timothy about his friend Demas. In Colossians, you've got Demas saying hi to the brethren. The Apostle Paul writing and saying, Demas says hi. It's a man who traveled around a little bit with the Apostle Paul. But then in 2 Timothy 4, 
You can sense the loneliness that Paul is experiencing. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That's tough. Paul experienced a loved one abandoning their profession. A number of us know people who have abandoned their profession. And we started out wondering how to respond to those who walk away from the faith they once professed. And while our responses on the back end, the actual moments of apostasy, are varied and numerous, what we see in our text this morning focuses on the front end. And Jesus commands each and every one of us to follow him. But like truly follow him in discipleship. And he has clearly set out the cost of following him. So what about you? Have you counted the cost? Is Jesus enough for you no matter what earthly difficulty you might face? Is love for Jesus and the knowledge of his love for you enough to inspire your obedience to his word? If it's not, know this, you are perilously close to being Demas yourself, deserting because you love this present world. To you, Jesus says, follow me fully, wholeheartedly, without reservation. But if you have counted the cost, if you do understand the words of the Lord, if you understand what it means to follow Jesus and have set yourself to his service, life on earth can and often is difficult as a result but you labor and live and love and serve in this world with the hope and the promise of Jesus Christ, the tremendous hope and promise. Here it is. Resurrection from the dead. The transformation of your lowly body to be like his glorious body and the eternal enjoyment of our Lord and our Master Jesus Christ. He is worth it. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word this morning. You are great, you are wonderful, you are holy, and you are worth it. I pray that this morning you would help us to be thinking through our own professions of faith and where we are in our faith, that you would help us at this moment to be thinking about the genuineness of our profession, that you would be helping us to think through the cost of following Jesus And in the power of your spirit, I pray that you would bring us to the place where we say, yes, I truly want to follow Jesus more than anything, and I'm devoted to doing it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to leave behind earthly priorities in favor of heavenly ones. Not that we don't take care of our earthly priorities, but that they, they pale in comparison to serving your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we don't get caught up in momentary um, excitements of crowds and, and allow our decisions to be made on those, I pray that you would help us to calmly and measuredly think through what it means for us to love and serve and cherish and honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.